0: Matthew, the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Men shall not live by bread alone And we're ministering to him. This is the Word of God.
1: Gracious Father, we thank you for um, passages like um, Matthew 4, and it's um, the difficulty with which it begs us to ask hard questions and to um, wrestle with how was your son tempted? What did that look like? What does that mean? And how do we apply it? So, Lord, we thank you for texts that make us conflicted in the inside, that are confusing confusing, and are challenging. And we pray now that you would use our time, our study, to open our eyes to what you want us to learn. Holy Spirit, I need your help today to make this very challenging concept of the temptation of the Son clear to our people. The fact that we could even use human language, English words, to try and do this is stunning and very inadequate. So please, Holy Spirit, help us today. Be our teacher through your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes um, some of the most penetrating thoughts or questions come from children, don't they? Remember the uh, this little book that maybe you read when you were a child called The Emperor Has No Clothes? Remember that one? Everybody else is all under the swoon of the emperor, and no one has the courage to say, hey, the guy doesn't have any clothes on. Except some kid in the parade says, the emperor has no clothes. Kids often have no real understanding of the tension associated with some of their questions or some of the things that they might say. For example, um, a nephew of mine, uh, one time as somebody was coming to their house to fix something, uh, the guy who was fixing it was uh, quite um, large and he was particularly large in the abdomen area. And one of my nephews said, hey, when's your baby due? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I had another niece who um, said uh, one time, she was traveling down the road with her mom and dad, said, hey, mom and dad, what's that over there? And they said, that's a funeral home. And she so what's it for? It's where, where dead people go. And she goes, how come dead people need a home? Right? Good question. So sometimes children just don't understand the, the full orb of what they're asking or even for that matter the importance of what they're asking a few weeks ago one of my sons um, in the midst of a conversation asked me this question dad if jesus was fully god and fully man then how could he be tempted he asked if jesus was fully god then how is it possible for him to be tempted like me That's a great question. In fact, he didn't really understand the the full perspective of what he was actually asking. Why was Jesus tempted? That's a really important question. For that matter, here's a couple other ones. How was Jesus' temptation similar or different from the temptations that we face? Further, if, if he was fully God, how is it even possible for him to be tempted? And for that matter, if he's God and man, how do we reconcile those two things? And then what does it mean for his ability to understand me in that he was tempted if he's tempted in a different way than I'm tempted? Those are enormously important questions. And sometimes it takes children to ask them because they don't understand the full importance of even what they're asking. So this morning, we're going to attempt to look at this question of why was Jesus tempted? And I hope to answer that question and then the other subset questions underneath it to try and help us understand why this passage is in the Bible, why it's so important, and what help and hope is there for us in the fact that the sinless Son of God, fully God, fully man, was tempted. Remember that the opening chapters of Matthew are designed kind of brick by brick to lay a foundation for what's to come in this book. In fact, two weeks from now, we'll see what's to come. We're starting a new series in Matthew called Get Real. It's the study of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' longest sermon in the Bible. And what Matthew is going to do in these early chapters is very quickly lay the foundation for who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, that that he's the one, the one long waited for, the one anticipated, the one hoped for. And what he's going to do is use these critical events in Jesus' life early on to lay the foundation for this future ministry. And last week we saw that in the baptism of Jesus. And we saw that the baptism of Jesus was in order to inaugurate his ministry, to send his ministry out, to validate him, And but it was also to identify him with mankind. And what's interesting is that immediately following the baptism of Jesus, where God says over him, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, the very next pericope or the very next thing that's in the text is, then Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And that is not by mistake. So there's something here that Matthew wants us to understand and know about Jesus. But it begs the question, why is the temptation of Christ so important for us to know and study? Well, this morning I'm going to give you five reasons why I think Jesus was tempted and why Matthew felt it was important enough to put in the early chapter of his book, And uh, those five reasons, three of them are going to come directly out of the text and then there's going to be two that are by inference or by application or by conclusion based upon the body of material in Matthew chapter 4. So again, five reasons why Jesus was tempted. Number one is this. He was tempted in order to show us divinely designed testing. To show us divinely designed testing. Look at verse 1. It begins, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. If you put together the other two accounts, Mark chapter 1 and Luke chapter 4, you will find that Jesus began to travel north after his baptism toward his home when he is directed by the Spirit. In fact, Mark says, and immediately he was directed by the Spirit to go into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness in the biblical narrative is a place of testing, a place of testing in particular for the nation of Israel. Remember that it was there that God tested them for 40 years after they failed to obey his command and take the land of Canaan. Some of you will remember the Sunday school song about the 12 spies. 12 men went to spy out Canaan. Remember this? 10 were bad and 2 were good. Remember that? So that, that test, the 10 were bad and 2 were good, that failure caused them to then be launched into the wilderness for 40 years. So the fact that Jesus is fast is 40 days, and the fact that he's in the wilderness is not by coincidence. It is that Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the perfect Israelite, and that his 40 days of wilderness testing will prove his obedience. So if you want to know specifically in a little bullet form, why is this passage here? Essentially, the temptation of Christ is designed to validate and prove his obedience, to show that in his humanity and his divinity, he is deeply committed to obeying the will of the Father. That's the big picture summary reason why this passage is here. But that doesn't answer why Jesus specifically was tempted or in what ways he was tempted or how that relates to us. The word tempt is really important to understand. Because the text says something rather difficult. It says that then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That creates a little bit of a challenge. Well, there's two meanings to the word tempt. The Greek word is periozo. And it can mean either Testing in the sense of approval or tempting in the sense of trying to achieve disapproval. The word can mean both. For instance, in Genesis 22, verse 1, when God um, tells Abraham to take his son, his only son, and offer him on the Isaac, the text says in the Septuagint that God wanted to test Abraham, the same word. It also can mean tempting in the sense of trying to achieve disapproval, like in 1 Corinthians 7.5, where Paul gives the admonition for married couples to be sure that they fulfill their marital obligations to one another, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the word tempt can mean both to test in terms of approval or tempt in terms of disapproval. Let me illustrate this for you. So test would be this. Uh, This weekend I helped my boys build a slip and slide down a hill. We got a big tarp out and some, some rocks and we put water on it. And I said, now check this out boys. If you run and you jump on this, this will slide right into the lake. So they did it and, and it was moderately successful at first. And then I stood back and looked and said, no, 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 no. I got a better idea. Give me baby oil and a little inner tube. So we got some baby oil. We squared that baby down and an inner tube. We lathered that thing up like a big donut. I said, now let's Test it, right? Here we go. So they jumped on it. So zoom into the water like, yeah. So when I see that, that slide and I have an idea, now let's check it to see how good it is. Or if we can make it better, I'll use the word test. Let's test it. Seeking to approve it. The opposite of that would be what I saw in the rear view mirror on the drive home. It is that in the back seat, we got kids who are like touching you, touching you. That's not a good test. That's testing for disapproval, right? Not touching, am I touching you? So that, that difference between those two is remarkable. But you could use the same Greek word to describe it. I could say, stop testing your brother. Or I could say, let's test the slide. Same word, really different meaning. In fact, the word has entirely different meaning depending upon the motive of the one doing it. In fact, the very same event could either be a tempting event or a testing event, and it could be the same event depending upon which vantage point you're looking at. it. A great example of this would be Job. That's a classic example where Job is identified as a model of righteousness, and so God tests him while Satan tempts him. And so in the same event, God wants to validate Job and Satan wants to vanquish him through temptation. John Calvin says of Christ's temptation that it is the Father's aim to accredit Jesus and it is the devil's aim to discredit him. So what's important to note in the word tempt and the whole dynamic that's happening here is the simple fact that it is the Spirit of God who is leading the Son into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So there's a clear sense that what is happening here in Matthew 4 is not by accident. There are divine purposes here. That there's a specific end that God is trying to accomplish. And what's going to take place is that Jesus is going to fully prove His fidelity to the Father over the next 40 days. He's going to embrace His full humanity. He will choose to not use His divinity to short-circuit the process of testing of the Father or use His divinity to short-circuit the temptation by the devil. He will use the fully-orbed sense of His humanity to resist the essence of the temptation. So the main reason why this is in Matthew 4 is to show us the complete obedience of the Son and this testing was by divine design. Why is it important that we know that? Because the New Testament in another place says the exact same thing. That there is a limit to everything that happens. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation, same word no trial, no temptation, whatever your vantage point you want to see it at, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So here's the deal. There is never anything in your life that you face that you ever have this excuse. I can't handle this. I can't do this. And in one respect, that's true. Because you can't. But you always have the spiritual resources to be able to defeat what is in front of you. And what Matthew wants us to see is that everything that's happening here is by divine design. This is not a mistake. There's something here that God wants to do and wants to show us. So what is that? The second thing, second reason why this is here, is to uncover the schemes of the devil. It is remarkable how much we learn here about the schemes of the devil. If you think about it, there is no more appealing target for the enemy and no more difficult target for the enemy than the Son of God. If he gets him to fall, the whole thing falls. And at the same time, there's no more formidable foe when it comes to temptation than the Son of God. So when Satan throws these temptations at Christ, he has to be spot on his best game. He has to throw at him everything he can in the kitchen sink, so to speak, in order to try and get Christ to fall. And what we learn is the way in which he goes about doing that. And what he does is this, very important to note, he offers the son a shortcut on obedience. Men and women, that is the essence of what Satan always offers everyone. He always offers people a shortcut. Listen to me, hell is going to be full of people who thought they found the shortcut to pleasing God who thought, no, there's no way that just receiving Christ by, by accepting his death as my own, that, that's not what that means. I don't have to confess that I'm a sinner. I just have to do better stuff. That's what I have to do. And that shortcut results in damnation. That's why the scripture says that wide is the gate that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. The devil is in the business of making multiple shortcuts along the path of life. Notice what he offers the Son. The first temptation. Verse 3 of chapter 4, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. what's, What's the temptation here? The temptation is, you're the Son of God, you've got power, you've got the authority, meet your physical needs by that power. You're hungry, Jesus, you haven't eaten in 40 days, so use your power, take these stones, and voila, make them bread. The temptation was this, a shortcut to provide his own relief to be able to use his divine powers to short-circuit the testing that God had put him in. To, to put a box, so to speak, on his willingness to submit to the will of the Father and to submit to, in obedience to what he wanted for the Son. And he says, use your power to provide for your own relief. That was the shortcut. The second temptation is he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. And we're not sure if this is a a vision or if he actually goes there or not, but regardless, he says, throw yourself down, and then the sneaky devil quotes the Bible, quotes Psalm 91, indicating that if Jesus did this, that God would rescue him. Look at what it says in verse 6. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So what is he offering him here? The enemy is quoting the Bible. By the way, note that. The Bible, no, the, the devil knows the Bible better than you do. He's quoting the Bible. And he says, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. And, and God won't allow you to die. This verse tells us that. And therefore, he'll save you. And instantly, people will know that, 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 that you are the Son of God. It'll validate your ministry. It'll prove that you're real. And you'll get a massive following of people. So he says to him, prove that you're real. And, and that was a shortcut. Jump off the temple and show everybody who you really are. The third temptation is the devil takes him to a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus eventually is going to reign over those kingdoms. He's going to be declared as the rightful Messiah, the ruler of all. And Satan offers Jesus the opportunity to get to the end game now to avoid everything else, and he'll give him the kingdom right now. All he has to do is bow down and worship him. He's offering him the opportunity to begin his messianic rule and to begin it immediately if he will just worship him. And the temptation was, push your reign to now. Another shortcut. So, I don't know about you, but I find it very interesting that the devil's strategies have not changed. Even in the Garden of Eden, the the temptation to Adam and Eve was... You won't die. God knows that if you eat, your eyes will be open. You know good from evil. The idea is there's a shortcut on obedience. And from Adam to Christ to us, the scheme of the devil has always been to offer an alternative plan to obedience. uh, To convince us that we know better. We're the exception to the rule. That there's a little way in which we can get around complete and full obedience. We think that somehow sexual purity before marriage is an old school thing. We think that lying on a resume is something that everybody does. Getting angry with your kids to make them obey. Well, at least they're obeying. And we find all sorts of little reasons to short-circuit obedience. And the devil loves to create venues for us to find a different path to try and get to the same goal. But the problem is a different path leads to a different end every time. So the reason Jesus was tempted... One of the reasons was so that we could see the schemes of the devil, so that when they come, we know, oh, I've seen this before. I've seen this before. This, this is this is going nowhere fast. Third, the third reason is to highlight the enormous value of the Word of God. Another reason why this is here is to show us how valuable and powerful the Word of God is. We, we see that even Jesus, the, the Son of God, full of divinity, full of power, chooses to combat the devil, not by using his divine prerogatives or his ability, but instead uses the scripture. I mean, think of the audacity of what's happening as as Satan is tempting him. He's the creator of the universe. He's the son of God. He is supreme and he is allowing a created being to tempt him. With one word, he could have annihilated Satan. He could have called, as he said in other passages, 10,000 angels. He could have done anything he wanted at that moment to destroy the enemy. And yet he holds back all of his divinely held powers. And what does he use instead to combat the devil? He uses the word of God. He uses the scriptures. He uses Deuteronomy, no less. I mean, think of what would happen to your spiritual success if you had to use only Deuteronomy. You can't say anything else. you would be like, oh, oh, oh. There's like a couple things. Deuteronomy 6 to 8 is what he uses. It's amazing. Hebrews 4 tells us this, that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul, of spirit, of joints, and marrow, that it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You know what that means? It means that there is life here, that there is power here, That there's a source of strength and there's spiritually victory here. And Christ uses the very word of God. That there's value, there's victory. And that means that we have to know our Bibles. Or we are toast, spiritually, in terms of being able to beat the devil. You you can't just fight off the devil by saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. That doesn't work. You're not gonna. You're not gonna say, "Get out of here," just leave me alone. You, you're not gonna say, "Well, I've done that before, not gonna do it again." Yeah, that works, right? You have to have an eclipsing power, something else that comes in that's greater than both you and your enemy, and that is, beloved, the inspired text. It is life. It is food. It is a discerner. It is powerful. Look what Jesus does in verse four. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8. He combats the second temptation by saying, it is written. From Deuteronomy 6, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then he combats him in the third one with Deuteronomy 6.13. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God in him only shall you serve. The equation is simple. The devil is defeated by a greater force, the written word of God. Hear me. This is a call for older people. Older. Let's go up. Okay. Older than 25. How about that? So, older than 25 year old people to memorize the scripture. So that you, a, 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 a bad thought comes your direction, a bad Opportunity to sin, that you don't have to scramble for your Bible. Where's that verse? Boom, it's right there. So you can defeat the wiles of the devil by a greater and more significant foe. You know, people of old knew this. That the Bible is not just a book of pithy sayings, but it has power and truth in it. People like, like Martin Luther, for instance, the great reformer. He wrote the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The second verse says this. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. dost ask who that may be, Christ Jesus. It is he, Lord Oath his name from age to age, the same, and he must win the battle. Now watch, how does he win the battle? Through us. Next verse. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his, what, truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fell him. That little word isn't you saying, get out of here. That little word is the word of God, applied The sword of the spirit, that Greek word, horema, it means a small sword, a small phrase. It means the individual words of God are the power to defeat the reality of who Satan is. This text goes on. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Hear me, the kingdom of Christ is rooted in the word of God. That's the essence of all obedience. It's the essence of all power. And it's the essence of how Jesus won the battle in a face to face combat with the enemy. He chose to use the scriptures. So if Jesus could trust the scriptures, shouldn't we? So now by inference, in the first three were to highlight the enormous value of the word, to uncover the schemes of the devil, and to show us divinely designed testing. What are the other two? Well, fourth, notice this. His testing and his temptation is given to demonstrate Jesus' sympathy. And and this is where we come back to the question that I began with. So why was Jesus tempted and, and how does that relate to my world and him knowing what it's like? Because the Bible tells us that Jesus is not an aloof ruler. Instead, he truly understands. He's a a Savior who cares. The the Bible's replete with texts on this. For instance, look at Hebrews 4.14. It says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So this passage, along with another one, Hebrews two fourteen to 18 link... Christ's ability to help us and our confidence and hope. Meaning that our ability to pray and come and say, give me grace and help me is directly related to another thought. You know what it's like to live in my world. you you've suffered in my world and so when I come to you, I'm not having to explain to you what it's like to be me and be human. You know and so you're ready to help me. In other words, who do you want to help you When you're hurting, do you want somebody who's never walked in your shoes? Or do you want somebody who knows what it's like to have done what you've done? Chemotherapy patients want to talk to chemotherapy patient survivors. People who are widowers want to talk to widowers about how they made it. People with rebellious children who've come back want to talk to people who have rebellious kids who are still waiting to come back. There's a beautiful merging of life experience. And this is what the text is telling us. That Christ, in His temptation, not only identifies with us in His baptism, but He identifies with us in our struggle in the world with temptation. Now... That then raises a question. Back again to the original question. If Jesus was fully God and sinless, if he was fully man and fully God, how is his temptation like mine? And and I've heard uh, counsel people who've asked me that question. I've even thought it many times. It kind of goes like this. You kind of draw the conclusion, look, if, um, if, if Jesus has the powers of divinity at his disposal if he's fully man and fully God, that means that that Jesus has this whole pool of resources, like almost half of who he is. Well, that's not a fair appraisal of Christ. But this whole part of him that I don't have, I'm not divine. I'm just all human. And therefore, how can he possibly understand because he's got all sorts of extra stuff that I don't have? So does he really know what it's like? Or let me put it this way. So, When Jesus is on the ground in the city of Jerusalem and he's having a conversation with Mary Magdalene, does he have to work to not lust after her? Does he have to work to to guard his eyes? Does he have to work to think rightly about her? He goes to the house of a Pharisee, walks in, sees the opulence and the the wealth of, of the Sanhedrin. Does he have to work and make his heart not covet the things that they have? Did Jesus ever, when he's walking along the path and hears someone say something really dumb, and the guy said it frequently, does Jesus have to work to not say something, a really cutting remark? Does Jesus have to work in those resp- How is it, if he's divine, doesn't he have a leg up on us? That, that's how we think. And therefore, if he does, how can he really understand? Now, three things on this. The first would be this. My my answer to that understandable question, and and frankly, that's a good question, would be this, that to sympathize doesn't require similarity in every respect. In in the same way, for instance, if my kids fell down and they scraped their knee, and I said, oh honey, I'm sure that hurts, I scraped my foot once, and they're like, that doesn't count, it's my knee, right? Right? Sometimes people struggle with, when Jesus is tempted in every respect, what what does that mean? Here's what I think it means. I think it means that he felt the full pull of sin like we do in our world. He felt the full emotions, the full humanity of temptation in every respect like we did. And it's important to note two things. Number one under this is that the, the basic temptations of humanity have not changed. I will concede the point that Jesus probably never had to struggle with whether or not he was going to speed in a car. Okay, that's safe. No, he didn't ever have to worry about that. But there were other temptations in the same category. The objects of history have changed, but the essence of the temptations have not. I've got news for you. It isn't any harder to live in our world than it was a generation ago. The temptations are the same. The objects have just changed over time. So the important point to note here is that the lure, the attraction, the gravitation, the pull of sin has not changed. And Jesus understood it. He fought it. He got the pull. Here's another way to think about it. It's also that Jesus understands because he had to deal with the full emotions of what it meant to be human in battling those temptations, even though he was fully God. Let me illustrate it this way for you. And again, this is where human language doesn't doesn't fully capture all of this essence. It's where we're humbled and realize, you know what, Lord, we, we can't fully describe this. So when I was in high school, I went to a camp one time and I went and did a high ropes course. You know those about 40 feet up in the air and they, they put um, this thing around your waist and uh, your legs and then you're hooked up to the support line. It's like a belay and then you connect to the support line that's above you so that when I'm going to do the um, the, the ropes course, I know the whole time I've got this support thing. It's like a four-foot-long uh, rope. It's attached to a guide wire above me. I know that if I fall, it's going to catch me. Uh, I know it's going to hurt, but it's, it, it's going to catch me. So I, I go to the first thing, and I'm, my knees are shaken, I'm trembling. I'm scared out of my mind. And they, I have to jump from this platform to this net on the other side, this cargo net. And i got to grab it, and it's like a five-foot jump. And I'm, I'm, I'm going, and I'm gonna jump, and they're saying, don't worry, it's safe. And I'm looking, and I'm going, I'm 40 feet up, it's not safe. You know, on this side, my, my heart is just freaking out, and I jump, and I grab a hold of the net, and, and I, and I made it. And if I got down, and you said to me, oh, that wasn't scary, you were connected the whole time, I'd have punched you in the nose. Because I'm up there, and I know I got the connection, but I'm still feeling the full effect of the fear that's associated with jumping with nothing below me but air. And I know I'm connected. In the same way, Christ's divinity was never compromised, but I would suggest to you that in His humanity, He understood and felt the full pressure of what it means to be a man, a human being in the world, with the lust, the pull, the desire, the inkling of the world at His heart pulling him and yet the bible tells us he absolutely won every battle with temptation now the second thing is this that you might say well was he really genuinely tempted though and and some people would suggest that jesus doesn't really understand our temptations because he wasn't sinful by nature meaning that he was sinless and they would suggest that if he's really going to understand what real temptation is. He'd need to have a sin nature. Now, I would agree that our sin nature and our fallen state makes battling sin without outside help impossible for us because we're depraved. We can't do it. So spiritually dead people have no ability to make themselves alive or even fight. We need outside resources, like in our case, the Spirit, the Word, and Christ in order to fight. But I'm not sure that depravity makes temptation, in its essence, any stronger. In fact, it could be just the reverse. Follow with me in this. It could be that Christ's sinless state and His divine power made temptation even stronger. It could be that after all that He has this divine power, He has the ability to conquer sin and to battle it not only in his humanity, he also could, if he had chosen, battle it in his divinity. So Christ not only fights the raw temptation, but fights the temptation to use his power to his own end. Power that we don't have. For instance, I've never been tempted when I'm hungry to turn rocks into bread. Never. I've never had that temptation. You know why? Because I've got zero power to do that. Let me illustrate it in another way. And I'm arguing for this, that maybe Christ's divinity and his power creates temptations that we don't even know about and can't even fathom. Temptations that would blow our minds, that makes battling over not looking at the wrong place when talking to Mary Magdalene seem like child's play comparing to what he's dealing with. Maybe we make the temptations of Christ so narrow and so little and so puny based upon our little perspective that we don't know the full orb, the extent, the power of the real thing that was on his shoulders. Let me show it to you this way. When, when I go to Dick's Sporting Goods and I bring my kids with me, they immediately go to the airsoft aisle and they have about 40 to 50 bucks in their name. And so they go to the airsoft aisle and they're like, Dad, look at this gun. It's awesome. It goes three hundred and fifty feet per second. That will really draw blood. Dad, look at that thing. And they're all excited, they're looking at look at these goggles, dad. Oh, they're awesome. Look at this. And I'm sitting there and, and you know, I look at those guns, and if they bought those guns, they would spend most of their money and, and in in fact they could buy them, but that's about all they could buy. And they'll never see the three thousand dollar kayak hanging over their heads. You know why? Because they don't have one of these. That's why. They don't have the power to buy it. All they have is 40 bucks. So in their minds, the temptation that they see is directly related to their ability to be able to grab a hold of it. So something up on the big screen or a plasma TV screen or a 300,000 or a 400,000 dollar house doesn't even cross their mind as something that's temptation because they have no power to it. And what if, what if, what if, what if, what if Jesus's supreme power and authority creates temptations, creates burden, creates a, 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 a difficulty that he has to fight that you and I have no idea what that is even like. Maybe Jesus' divinity doesn't make him less understand. Maybe it maximizes his understanding. Maybe the temptations that he faces would blow your mind because of the power at his disposal. The third thing is that Jesus was fully God and therefore could not have sinned. Here we have a mystery, and here one that we must acknowledge, that Jesus was fully man, and he was really tempted, and yet he was fully God, so he could not have sinned. Jesus was fully human, so he was able to experience real temptations. He was fully God, yet he was not able to sin because of that. And I know that these things are intention. But the reality is, the essence of the temptation that Satan offers to Jesus is to meet his own needs by using his divine power. And in almost every case, Jesus is asked to subvert God's obedient plan for him by using his divine powers. I see no problem with a divine nature that cannot sin meshed with a human nature that is fully temptable. Or let me say it this way. Some of you like me at times, would say this, do you even know what it's like to be like me? Do you even know what it's like to live in my world? And as I studied this text, I wondered if that's the wrong question. I wondered if instead, Jesus would want to say to us, do you even know what it's like to be me? Why is it that we assume that that he doesn't understand our world, and we don't assume that we don't understand his world. The fact of the matter is that Jesus could not or would not fall into sin or disobey the Father because the plan of God and his heart were not only meshed together, but Jesus knew how to fight the wiles of the devil. The point of all this is very very simple. It is that Jesus can truly sympathize. Listen, he really understands. And, And because of that, there is real hope and help. It means that when you cry out to him and say, help me in my hour of need, that he not only has the resources and the ability to help you in your hour of need, but it also means that he understands what it's like to feel the full weight of temptations that beg you to go off of God's plan. And it also means that Jesus is able to give you hope and help beyond what you can even dream After the death of our daughter, we were opening up all sorts of uh, cards and um, reading them. And there was one card that ministered to us beyond any other. It was a card that was written to us by one of our church members who had 30 years earlier experienced a stillbirth. And it was the simple words of somebody who had gone ahead of us who was still Alive, making it and doing really well. That was an enormous encouragement. It it was there. It was an instant connection, a level of comfort and an enormous amount of hope because we knew somebody who had gone before us. It wasn't identical. It wasn't exactly the same, but it was somebody who could understand. They had walked where we walked. And the purpose of Christ's temptation was so that you would know he was fully obedient to the Father and he understands and knows how you can be helped. So why was Jesus tempted? Here's why. To show us divinely designed testing, to uncover the schemes of the devil, to highlight the enormous value of the word, to demonstrate Jesus' sympathy to us, and there's one more. But in order to find out what that one is, you have to come back next week (laughs) and figure out how it connects to our next passage. So, Father in heaven, we thank you that you in the Son have provided for us an example for us to follow, a path that we are to emulate, a life, Lord, that we can model our lives after. Thank you, Jesus, that you do truly understand. There's no doubt that you um, were not only fully God, but also fully man. And in that combination of those two things you've provided for us the beautiful blend of perfect obedience and real human suffering and so father would you this morning bring a sense of comfort lord like i experienced on thursday when i just found myself meditating on the beautiful reality of what it meant, Jesus, for you as the Son to be a human and to choose to not go by any other path than what the Father had designed. Lord, give us hope and help for those today who are just so weary of their sin Lord, today would you draw them to your Son and cause them to see there's no other one who could have done this but Jesus. He's the only way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to you, Father, but by Him. And so, Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the Son of God, that you are the one and you are the only one who could give us both grace and help and our example in time of need. We ask this in Jesus' name.